There is no limit to what one man can accomplish when he is walking in God's will. I'm going to say that again. There is no limit to what one man can accomplish when he's walking in God's will. Therefore, there is no limit to what one church can accomplish when they're walking in God's will. When you know, and I mean know, what God has called you to do, and then you step out in that assurance that I am about God's business, and you have the promise of God's power, no man can stop that, and no devil can limit that. There's no limit to what one person, what church, one family can accomplish when you're walking in God's will. But people who believe that are rare. They're very special. People that truly and honestly believe that without any caveats or yeah buts. But people who believe that and are willing to step out and do it, those people are downright hard to find. But there are a couple of them in scripture. So before we get into Romans, let's just remind ourselves of a few of these guys, because I don't want to just say things and you all say, all right, well, that just sounds like Tyler being enthusiastic. Well, it is that. But remember in Numbers chapter 14, when the children of Israel were on the, the edge of the promised land and they were afraid to go in because they had learned that the people there were mighty and big and were going to beat them down. Caleb and Joshua said in Numbers 14, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. I love that attitude. He says, yeah, they're big and yeah, they're strong and yeah, they're scary, but we are fighting for the Lord. And that means whatever protection and strength they had has been removed. So there's no reason to be afraid. Let's get into that promised land. How about Jonathan, Saul's son, when the Philistines were rampaging through the land and he was up on the mountain praying about whether or not they should go fight. Is there a time when you should stop praying and get going? Yeah, there is. 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's like, look, we're up here debating and praying and figuring out what to do. He's like, God could use us to win the whole battle. So let's go over there. And guess what? They did and God did. They won the whole battle by themselves, which is why I think when David killed Goliath, Jonathan took David under his wing. He's like, that's my kind of guy who doesn't see obstacles as reasons to stop, but as, oh man, God's got to do something great here. And God does send us out to do great things and he gives us his power, but it's not enough to know that. You got to walk it out in faith. And today we're going to see that Paul is going to describe to the Romans his ambitious plan to fulfill the mission that Christ had given him. And for our part, we want to try to take some of that same boldness that Paul had and emulate it in our own lives for that to which Christ has called us. And not just as individuals, but today primarily for us as a church in this place and in this time. Because if God is on our side... There's no ambition that is too great in his service. And there's no body and there's no church that is too small for God to work an amazing victory. Amen? So let's read this now. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Well, as I said, this is the conclusion. This is the beginning of the conclusion of the book of Romans, which will continue till chapter 16, verse 27. To run you through our outline, and we'll do it again next week to remind you, but we start in Romans 1, verses 1 through 17, which is Paul's introduction, in which he gives his name, he gives his reason for writing, and he gives the thesis statement, you might say, of the book of Romans. Then from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 8, verse 39, it's all about about the gospel in great, wonderful detail. Then from chapter 9, verse 1 to 11, verse 36, Paul is talking about Israel. The main theological concern of the day was, what are we going to do about Jews and Gentiles? And Paul explains. Then from chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 15, verse 13, it was application. It was moral instruction. A lot of talk about love in there. And now from chapter 15, verse 14 to the end of the book, we have the conclusion. And now you can feel the difference because Paul is speaking more personally to the people. He's not really giving a, a sermon anymore. He's talking to them, which is important because he's going to get to the, the purpose of his letter, meaning the immediate purpose above just writing a great book. He assures them that, look, I know I laid out all the basics and I spoke some strong things about these moral issues, but I don't want you to think that I think you're doing poorly or that I've heard bad things about the church in Rome and they really need to hear this. He goes, no, I know you're doing well. He said, I spoke strongly as a reminder. And he also explains why he as Paul, who had never been to Rome, read chapter one again, he'd never been there before. He says, How, what right do I have to speak to you this way? He says, because of the grace given to me. And this is not saving grace. This is like spiritual gift, charisma, grace. This is the ministry that God has given to me, which is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And since the church in Rome was at least a mixed multitude, most likely primarily Gentiles, he says, I have divine authority to preach to you. And that was Paul's calling. He explains it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, when he's talking about the first time he met the apostles in Jerusalem. He said, when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived, here it is again, the grace that was given to me, meaning my ministry, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's calling was the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew what his calling was. We all have one. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, Let each man live the life to which God has assigned him and to which God has called him. So over and above your salvation, you have a calling from God. And Colossians 1, verse 9, God wants you to know what it is. Paul says, I pray that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will. God wants you to know. But your individual calling is not the subject today so much. Your individual calling is a subset of the great calling that we all have been given by Jesus. We usually call this the great commission, but in context today, we're going to call this the great calling. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love that because he goes, as king of the world... Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Like, who are you to tell me what to do? The one with all authority. So whatever he's about to tell us to do, you can't wriggle out of. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That last phrase is so important because everything I said at the beginning hinges on that. If you're in God's will, then Christ is with you. And if Christ is with you, who has all authority, nobody can stop you. So what is our calling then from this verse? The imperative of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the command word in there is make disciples. That's what he tells us to do. Make disciples. And then there's three operative participles that go along with it. Go, baptize, and teach. So the primary thing is we're making disciples. And how do we do that? We go we baptize and we teach. We go to new places, we make new converts, and we teach them what it means to be a Christian. All of that falls under the heading of make disciples. As this church, meaning Calvary Chapel Trustville, 
That is our mission. If we had a mission statement, which we don't have a formal one, this is it. Go to all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. And I will say, with a smile on my face, we are doing this. We are actively pursuing this calling. We are obeying the Great Commission. We're making disciples. We have regular meetings, Sundays, Wednesdays, Sunday nights to pray, home fellowships, women's studies, men's studies, children's ministry. We're going to be launching a youth group this fall. All, all of this is to make disciples, to teach us as a church, and then to focus on what's specific to a disciple who is a man or as a woman, teaching the kids the basics so that as they get older, they can eat the meat and potatoes when they come in here with us. We're also reaching out to make new disciples. We have things that I'll call our static outreaches that we do as a church. This means we post the, the podcasts online, the teachings from Sunday morning. They go online. We go out on the radio Monday through Friday in three different states. Isn't that cool? We have a YouTube channel that puts the videos out there. We have resources that we create, books and, and videos and things like that. That means that with all of this, and with all the technology that's available, we are preaching the gospel 24-7 from this church. There is never a moment, unless the internet crashes entirely, which seems unlikely at this point, we, there is never a moment when we are not teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel. Isn't that cool? We are constantly always doing this. It's static outreach. You put it out there and you let it happen. But we've also got our dynamic outreaches, meaning things that we have to get out and do. The public schools. We're, we're starting up our second discovery club, which if you don't know what that is, that is an after-school program to teach the Bible to public school children. How cool is that? That is pretty amazing, isn't it? We get to do that. But not only that, we're there to minister to the teachers. We buy extra school supplies for them. We do teachers' appreciation lunches and dinners. And uh, we, we get a chance to talk to them and pray with them. We're doing the clothing drive, which they asked us to do. We've also got the pregnancy center ministry. I love that we get to say we were involved in pregnancy center ministry before Roe v. Wade was struck down. And there are lots of people that are joining it now. Praise the Lord. But I'm just, it's just kind of cool to be able to say that, that we were, we were doing it when it, was, when it was difficult and when it was scary. And I suppose it always will be. But we do the 5Ks, and some of you go and volunteer regularly. They've got a fundraiser coming up at the end of the year. We're planning some ideas to get them connected with the schools, and they need help. The prisons and the jails, we get the chance to go in and teach apologetics and conflict resolution and goal setting and good relationships to people that are in prison. How awesome is that? This is what we get to do. We're going to the least of these. The, the issues that are the most hot button in our society today, we have said, let's find a ministry to take the gospel there. And that's this little church, this tiny little church right here that in, in my mind is even smaller. And I still get surprised when I come in and see how big this thing is. Because the Lord is in it. And if the Lord is in it, there's no limit to what you can do. Revelation 3, verse 8, the Lord said, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. You know what I can say with all the joy in my heart? Calvary Chapel Trustville has been denied nothing when it comes to our ambition for ministry. God has not stopped us from doing anything. It might have gone slower than others, but man, there's nothing that we've said, let's do that, that we haven't been able to do. There's no dream we've had to put on the shelf. There's nothing we've had to say, well, I guess that's not going to happen. The Lord is giving us everything we've asked for. That's, that's amazing. So just real quick, for those of you that are newer here, maybe you've just been coming and, and watching and observing, that's wonderful. But man, why not get involved in this? Don't you want to get a piece of this? If you knew that you were part of a, of a football team or a unit of soldiers that had never suffered a defeat, and since they were following a general that could not be defeated, would only go from strength to strength, wouldn't you want to join up? That's what the Lord is doing here. I am confident as a pastor that if I had to stand before Jesus today and he were to question us according to the Great Commission, I would be able to smile and say, Lord, I've done everything you've asked us to do. And we would hear him say, well done. 
Isn't that great to think about? That we don't have to have that guilt hanging over our heads over, are we doing it though? Did we go to the least? Did we clothe those that didn't have clothing? Did we go to those in prison? Did we feed the hungry? We're doing all of that. But there is more to our calling as a church. And that's where we're going to go next. Paul says, this is mine and this is what I do. This is ours and this is what we do. But Paul is going to go a little farther and that's where we're going to be spending most of our time today. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So if I seem real excited about all the things I was saying, so was Paul about his ministry. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. What does that mean? That means Paul didn't really have anything to say about somebody else's ministry. But he'll tell you all about what God's doing through him. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And here we go. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul explains his, and I love the way the ESV translates it. It's kind of a dynamic translation, but it's perfect. His reason to be proud this is variously translated his boast or his glory in the older translations. The Greek word is kaukasis. And it does mean boast, but it's not boast as in brag. It's glory as in Super Bowl victory glory or winning the battle glory. He says, I, I have a reason to be proud of what I've done in fulfilling my calling. And this is important to know because we are permitted according to this verse, to glory in what God has done through us. Very often we feel like in order to be properly humble, we've got to minimize what God has done. We've got to only talk about the things we haven't done yet. We shouldn't get excited. We shouldn't have big ideas. We shouldn't have big dreams. God's going to do what God's going to do. Don't bring your human ambition into that. Paul didn't have that problem. Paul's like, I know what I'm called to do, and I'm doing everything I can to get it done. Do you remember the parable of the shrewd steward? Jesus said there was a steward who was about to be fired, and so he went to all of the, the owner's debtors, and he said, hey, I'm going to cut your debt in half so that they would give him a job after he was fired. And Jesus goes, that's really sneaky, but I wish my people had half as much ingenuity and forethought and shrewdness about my work as they do about their own. He says, I wish you could take a fraction of your ambition for work and for money and for family and aim it in a godly Christian direction. Jesus said that. So when we talk about these things, it's okay for you to get revved up and excited and dream big. You're not somehow missing it. You're not somehow being boastful in a sinful way when you do that. Paul says, look at what God's enabled me to do. He says, I've traveled all the way around. Around what? The Mediterranean Sea. All throughout the Roman Empire, proclaiming the Messiah to the Gentiles with supernatural power. There's so many things we could focus on in this passage. But he said, I went from Jerusalem to Illyricum. We've got a map up there for you. Illyricum was a region in Rome at this point. It later would take on the name Dalmatia. And it's modern day Albania, Croatia, and Montenegro. Is it strange for you to think of Paul preaching the gospel in the Balkan states? Because that's where he was. It's not just Greece, not just Turkey, but all the way up into Europe. He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel, which had been given to him specifically. Acts 9.15, God told Ananias, I have made Paul a chosen vessel of mine to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul was an elder at Antioch, it says that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And that was the first missionary journey. Point being, Paul said, I've been given a very specific, out loud calling and mission from Jesus Christ, and I've done it. I've been able to fulfill everything that Christ has asked me to do, all the way to Illyricum. And then he tells us of his ambition. I'll tell you guys, as a young man, I really wrestled with the fact 
that I was very personally ambitious. But I knew that that was not really a good thing, supposedly, for Christians to have. I wish I had been able to do this word study that I did in preparation for this. Because Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition, which is that word vainglory, kenodoxia, right? Ambition for yourself, to puff yourself up. But look what he says, I make it my ambition. That word is philatemeomai. It comes from two Greek words, philos, which means love, like Philadelphia, right? And then time, which means honor, the love of honor. That's, that's a pretty good description of what healthy ambition is, isn't it? A love of honor, not a love of accolades and awards and prizes, but of, of properly earned and deserved honor. It's okay to have a little ambition for the gospel mission. And he tells us that his goal was a Christian, was to preach the gospel in new places and plant new churches there. That was Paul's ambition. That's what got him up in the morning. That's what he used to do when he was sitting up at night and thinking about, what am I going to do with my life next? When you just got to talking to him, shooting the breeze, sooner or later, it would circle around to preaching the gospel to new places. He said, I keep going around the Mediterranean and I keep on finding new peninsulas where we've got to keep on preaching more gospel. And he says, I'm doing this in fulfillment of, according to verse 21, Isaiah 52, verse 15. Now, this is the very beginning section of the suffering servant part of Isaiah, where he says he was crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. And this is the section where the Lord says, my servant is going to astonish the whole world. I'm going to basically rock every nation around the world with my son who's going to come and die on the cross. And Paul says, and I'm getting to fulfill that. So can you see how this is appropriate ambition? It's in line with the mission we've all been given. It's in line with his personal calling. And it's right in line with what the scriptures say. So Paul has full godly permission to turn loose all of his ability in the power of the Holy Spirit in that direction. So what did Paul do? He grabbed his calling by the horns. He said, if God is in this, let's go. If God gave us that promised land, who cares if they're giants? They're going down. If God has told us he'll drive out our enemies, who cares how many Philistines are over there and that it's just the two of us? Let's go. He says, I'm going to find my Ephesians 2.10 to-do list. The works set out beforehand that I should walk in them. I'm going to find them and I'm going to do every one of them. If the stepping stones across the river of life, I'm going to find every single one. I'm not going to miss one city, one peninsula, one region, one synagogue. They're all going to hear the gospel. He says, I don't want to just preach to the Gentiles. I'm going to be a preaching pioneer. I'm going to blaze new trails. I'm going to go to new cities. I'm going to go to places where I say Jesus and they say, huh? They're going to say, who? I'm going to say Moses, and they're going to say, what is that? That's where he wanted to preach. So as we get into this now, this is where we're going to get our big three points for the day. Now that you've seen Paul's ambition subsumed under the Great Commission, what are we to be doing? Our great calling of Matthew 28 as a church does not just involve us making disciples here. But the first thing, we have to go to new places. And I don't just mean we with a capital W referring to the worldwide church. I mean we as Calvary Chapel Trustville, the people sitting in this room, have to go to new places. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And we go, yes, praise the Lord. We're going to speak in tongues. We're going to see people healed. We're going to learn new things about the Bible. He goes, yes. But the primary reason I'm sending you my spirit is to send you out around the world. Jerusalem, that's your city. Start where you are right now. Judea, your region. Samaria, your country, the extent of the land that belongs to you. And then to the end of the earth, which is all the other countries. So in our case... Trustville, shall we say, the greater Trustville area, is our Jerusalem. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Trustville, and Alabama, and all the United States, and to the ends of the earth. 
He says, I've given you my spirit to take my gospel everywhere. When I moved down here to plant this church, I was asked several times by several different people at a, several different levels of politeness, <laughs> what in the world do we need another church in Alabama for? I told you this story. I was closing on my house and somebody goes, why do we need another church here? Like, this isn't the time to have this discussion, lady. I'm closing on my house. Why do we need another church? Well, there's a couple reasons, and I don't need to explain them to you, but let's just, let's just do this. Number one, because so many churches are dying. So many churches are apostate. So many churches are giving up and shriveling up. But also because when you are going to reap a new harvest, don't you need new seed? If you're out there sowing the seed in the field, your neighbor goes up and says, didn't you sow those seeds last year? Oh, there's something wrong with the seeds you sowed 20 years ago? It's like, no. God's about to do something new. And I think the, the evidence of that is in this room. The evidence of that is the fact that we're the ones preaching in the prison. The evidence of that is that we're the ones that are helping out the pregnancy center and, and launching a discovery club. Not that somebody else couldn't, but no one else did. So here we are. God's led us to this place. But we ought to make it our ambition as a church, as our ambition to plant new churches in our state and throughout our region. There are so many people in Calvary Chapel that are wanting to plant churches, and it makes me crazy, and I love to tease them, because they all go to the beach. <laughs> They're all from California, because that's where most of them are, and it's wonderful, that's where the Bible colleges are, and they all go out, and I tease the guys down in Mobile and everything, because I'm like, way to leave California and go straight to the beach, guys. <laughs> Great, good job. I'm proud of you. you know, and they're, they're wonderful. I love them too. But like Florida is full and, and California is full and the Gulf is full. And like, what about, what about the rest of Alabama? What about over in Mississippi? What about all the rest of the places that no one wants to go, at least in our family? Let's plant new churches there. Our church needs to be a sending church, raising up men and sending them out, not raising up men and hoarding them so that we can have a really skilled church staff. No way. We make disciples who make disciples. We plant churches who plant churches. We send missionaries who send missionaries. I'll know that we have really arrived when we plant a church that then plants another church. When we're a grand church to somebody. That's when you know, all right, the Lord is really using this place. And yet, not only should we be planting churches in Alabama and in Mississippi and around the country, we need to participate in the cause of worldwide missions. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise Jesus. That's the gospel. Amen? But then how are they going to call on Him if they've not believed? And how are they going to believe of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Missions work. Worldwide missions work. Now this subject has fallen out of favor in recent years. I feel like when I was growing up that there was a constant push to get the gospel to new countries. And I was at Liberty University. They were always talking about missions. And we were hearing stories of missionaries and where the gospel was being planted. And it seems that when this postmodern wave really crashed, people stopped talking about missions as obedience to the Great Commission and started talking about it as a form of colonialism and oppression. How dare you go to some other country and tell them how to live? You're trying to put your culture on them? And people got embarrassed about it. And there was that, that brother that went to that island in the middle of the Pacific and was killed trying to preach the gospel. And rather than churches now saying, praise the Lord that this man was worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, they came out and said, we really shouldn't be doing this anymore. It's, it's left over from the Victorian era, trying to take over the world. We've got to stop. No, it's not. No, it's not. The fact the Bible wasn't even written in our own language should tell us that that's not the case. What did Jesus say? And then COVID, of course, slammed that door real shut because every nation that had any kind of totalitarian bent used it to put all of these new restrictions in place. And it is now officially harder to do missions work today than it was before the pandemic happened. So people have come home. People have stopped sending. But I'll say, you know what? It's 2022. Enough's enough. That's, that's long enough. 
It's time for the church to get back at it, to get out there and spread the gospel to the whole world. Well, it's harder now. Okay. In the Roman Empire, they would dip you in candle wax and light you on fire for preaching the gospel. Right? If you're going to get deported, that's all we're worried about. We'll go back and make them deport us five or six times. Every church needs to have this worldwide view of the gospel. And as Americans, we have an especial responsibility to take the gospel out, to demonstrate practical love, to train up new servants in these places. Why do we have an especial responsibility? Because Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. I gave you all that money. I gave you centuries of peace. I gave you incredible Bible teachers. I gave you incredible churches. Don't sit on that. Don't bury that talent in the ground and say, Lord, here you go. Just go out and take those 10 talents and make 10 more. And then teach those 10 talents to make 10 more. We have a responsibility until such time as the Lord should strike this country and we can't do it as freely. I want to be able to say, as long as it was open, we were going, we were sending, we were praying. Have you ever considered going as a missionary yourself? And don't just immediately put that thought in your brain and say, nope, and swipe it away. Bring it back. We're going to focus on this for a minute. Hold this in the center of your mind. You yourself, your name as a missionary to another country. Have you ever really prayed that through before? That perhaps the Lord might use you to do that? If you get on the internet or you watch TV and you find out about things going on in other countries and you get so brokenhearted or you get so angry and you say, someone's got to do something. You ever consider that God might be calling you to do that? Now, maybe short term, maybe you go over for a year or two. Maybe you just do as many short trips as you can. But what about forever? We can't lose that in the church. That it is a regular, honorable, celebrated thing to give up everything and go somewhere else for the sake of the gospel. Consider the places that we're, we're making missions connections with. Uganda. We're going to Uganda in January. I'm going anyway. I hope some of you will come with me. Nepal. We're actively trying to get back to Nepal. It's very difficult right now. So pray the doors open. Peru. I've been invited to go to Peru and speak down there. And we might be able to bring a team with us. Israel. Zach and I are thinking, all right, we've got all these connections with Israel through his job. We've got to do something over there. Russia. I've been to Russia more than I've been anywhere else. And they're in a tight place right now. They need men and women of God desperately. And before you get to that thing, is well, don't they have pastors and teachers? Yes, they do. But the early church set us the example of helping each other. And those that knew more went and taught more. We can't have this nostalgic, or, or not nostalgic, this rose-colored view, this paternalist view of other countries that say, well, they have the gospel. They don't need discipleship. Yes, they do. Yes, they totally do. We have to learn from them. Yeah, we do too. But we have things to teach them as well. Sound doctrine. Teach them about how, how to do this. We've been practicing it for a long time. Let's teach you how to do it. What about you? Have you ever had this thought, especially the men in this room? Have you ever had this thought that, man, it feels like I was born in a time where all the adventures are over. Nobody's settling new countries. Nobody's fighting the Indians to cross the country to California. Nobody's fighting in World War II. Nobody's going to the moon. And like, I'm just stuck in this place where we watch TV and we eat McDonald's, and that's where I have to live. The adventures aren't over. Amen. If you're in Christ Jesus, the whole world is open to you. How would you like to live on the frontier and watch the Spirit do extraordinary things through you? How would you like to chop down the giant tree that the people are worshiping and see a bunch of people get saved because the devil didn't curse them all? Amen. That's Pastor Bill's story from Uganda a few weeks ago. C.T. Studd was a cricket player and was the most prominent cricket player in all of England at the time. And he left his scholarships, his fortune, and everything to go be a missionary in China and then to the Congo. Imagine if the number one draft pick in the NFL declined his contract and said, I'm going to go to the center of Africa and be a missionary. And everybody's like, how could you do that? It's, it's just irresponsible. It's unfair. It's ungrateful. But he would say later on, just one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. 
Parents, this is how you secure your children, by the way. You're worried about them. You're worried about if they're going to fall away or walk away from Jesus. Get them on the mission field. Take them with you. Send them. Let them see what the rest of the world is. Let them experience what real evangelism is like when there is stakes and there's danger and they see the poverty and they see the need for the good news and they see how the gospel transforms lives and you bring them home and they'll say things like, what are we doing here? We got to get back. If God is in it, there's nothing that can stop us. Not even death, not even suffering, not even poverty. We should be willing to endure all those things for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you one example of, of things that get me excited when I think about world missions. There's a map I want to put up here. So this is, this is Southeast Asia right here. And down in the left corner, you can see that's India. Now, India is kind of shaped like a triangle. And then they got this little spit kind of coming up the top corner. And that little section borders Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, and China, Tibet in the north. There was one time when my father was over there in that little piece of India, and they were doing pastor training. And a man came up to him and said, this training is needed by everybody in this region. If you come with me right now, I'll take you to every pastor in all of those countries and we'll train them all. Now, he wasn't able to go at that time, but I've never forgotten that story. It's like, just think of that. Getting to take sound doctrine and sound ministry principles and the love that God has given us and give it to every Christian church in that region. Be able to sneak up into China and do stuff in Tibet where everybody's in the bond of Hinduism and Buddhism and communism. And to get, I just, I think about that. Like, what if, what if the Lord could take some of us and that whole region just gets trained in the gospel and then as decades start to go by, something starts to shift and people don't understand what's happening. In these places like Myanmar and I believe Bhutan, where it's illegal to be a Christian. But who cares? They need the gospel. Oh, they said we can't go. Well, God said go. And I look at that and I'm like, when we could be in that one little strategic spot, you could bounce into all these different countries and you could lead all these different people to Jesus and go on a trip where, man, I don't know when I'm coming home. We're just going to go. We're going to go from church to church until we run out of churches or we die. I believe that God could use this church to completely transform that region for the gospel of Jesus. And the first domino might be sitting in this room right now. You think of that, one of the most unreached, impoverished, disease-ridden centers of the whole world. God might say, I want to take that and send revival, like century-long revival to this place. I need somebody. And that person might be sitting right here today. It is this church's ambition to plant churches in Alabama, America, and around the world. We've got to go. Now listen, not all of us can go. I get that. Not all of us should go. But if we can't go, then what are we supposed to do? Well, Paul continues. Read verse 22. This is the reason why I've been so often hindered from coming to you. Remember, Paul had never been to Rome before. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, you love that? He says, I've planted as many churches as I can, and it seems like everywhere I go, people know about Jesus. I've got to go somewhere else. And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now Paul says, this is the reason, Romans, why I'm sending you a letter and not coming to you in person. As much as I love to come. Acts 19.21, when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, Luke records that Paul said, next time I must see Rome. I'm not leaving Jerusalem again without going back to see Rome. This book was written at the end of his third missionary journey. And his plan for his fourth missionary journey was to take the gospel to Spain. It's, it's interesting that the longer you read the Bible, the more these countries become a little more familiar to us. 
that the apostles were taking the gospel far beyond their comfort level. And this is largely the reason why Paul wrote Romans in the first place. It's almost an introduction so that they'll know who he is. They'll know what his doctrine is. And so that when he arrives, they won't be like, all right, now who is this guy? They'll say, oh, this is Paul who wrote us the letter to the Romans. And in Acts 28, 15, when Paul is actually coming up to Rome, the, the Christians in Rome came out of the city and welcomed him in. They walked with him because they were so excited to see him, probably because of this letter. And he explains the job he's doing right now, which is to bring a financial gift to Jerusalem from the other churches he had planted in Macedonia and Achaia. This would be Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, Corinth, all those churches in that area. Acts chapter 20, verse 4 gives a list of all the people who came with him. He brought representatives from all these churches, guys like Timothy and Aristarchus and Luke and Secondus and Tychicus. And he brought all of these Gentiles with a financial gift to the Jews to kind of bridge the gap. Because as we know, this was a tough thing for the Jewish Christians to accept the Gentile Christians. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about this. 2 Corinthians was largely written because Paul says, I'm about to come your way, and when I get there, I'm going to need to collect the money so that I can take it to Jerusalem. Paul wrote, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God, meaning the Jews. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So while Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians to collect the money from them, he reminds them why. He says this is going to tie the Jewish world and the Gentile world together in the bonds of love. And that's exactly what happened. Acts 21.17 says that they were welcomed with joy when they arrived. And Paul's plan was to deliver this gift, stay for a while, launch a fourth missionary journey, which would take him through Rome all the way to Spain. I'll bet you Paul rolled out a map and said, what's the, what's the farthest place along this sea that we can find? They said, Spain. He says, all right, we're going to Spain. We're going to stand on the rock of Gibraltar and preach Jesus at the end of the world. They didn't know there was other continents out there. So Paul's like, let's go. Let's go to the end of the earth and preach there. But of course, we, we know from the book of Acts 23 that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, was made a prisoner, and did go to Rome, but as a prisoner of Caesar. And the book of Acts ends with him in Rome, in a, in a house, not in a prison cell or anything like that, not able to leave, waiting for his appeal, and ministering to the Christians there. Church history tells us that Paul was released from that prison, that Nero allowed him to go, and that he did make it to Spain, but then was later arrested, and that's when he was beheaded. So that's why some of the prison epistles, like Philippians, are very joyful and very hopeful. Like, I'm getting out of here. It's just a matter of time. And then others, like 2 Timothy, are like, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. It's over. I'm being poured out like a drink offering, because they were written over those two different imprisonments. So where are we then in terms of, of ourselves here? If you can't go to another country for the gospel, and think real careful before you put yourself in that category, you can send someone else. Romans 10, 15 says, how shall they go and preach unless they are sent? Many of us have been blessed financially it is your Christian responsibility to fund the work of the kingdom. To invest in spiritual riches. Jesus told us that, right? Don't lay up treasures where moth and rust can destroy, but lay up treasures in heaven by getting hold of these missionaries and saying, you're giving up everything to go? I'll pay your way. It's a shame. Many, many, and I would say most people that want to be missionaries are unable to go, and this is the reason why. I've seen this played out many, many times. If you want to go with such and such mission board, you have to have a degree of some kind. You have to have a missions degree or a master's of divinity. So they go to school, but they're just kids. So they take out a bunch of student loans. Now they have their degree. They go back to the missions board and say, we'll send you, but we won't send you until your loans are paid off because we don't want to send you with debt. So they get jobs and they start working to pay that debt off. The average length for that is 10 years or more. At this point, they're established. They've got jobs, they've got kids, and they don't go. This happens all the time. 
And it's a shame, which is why when we send missionaries, we're just going to go because we can buy plane tickets, right? I don't have a problem with missions boards, but I'm just telling you, when we send missionaries, we're going to send them like we would send them anywhere to plant a church because I don't want anything external holding us back. And research has shown that if every Christian were to tithe only 10%, Forget special gifts, forget Lottie Moon Christmas fund, forget all that. Just 10% of your income. I think this was Barna that did this research. Every church budget would be 100% met. Every parachurch group would be fully supported and every missionary would be fully funded. Just tithe. If every Christian were just to tithe 10% of their income, the church would not lack for anything. Now, there are a lot of shady missions groups. And I'll tell you, and Zach will tell you, and those of you that have been over around the world, there are a lot of people that are less than scrupulous, that are happy to make a bunch of clever newsletters to take your money. And that's a business for some people around the world. They pretend to be Christian so that they can get missions money. There was a guy connected with our old church who said he was starting an orphanage. He never started an orphanage. We just sent money. And when he wanted to send pictures, he would round up a bunch of street kids and say, Smile! And then when they came to see the orphanage, he paid off a bunch of parents to let their kids live at this little hotel that he rented for a week and called it an orphanage. That happens. So I understand you got to be careful with this. So find something you can verify. But I hope at least we never have to shutter a missions trip or stop a church plant for lack of money. I just couldn't, I couldn't stomach that for myself. I drive two cars. I have a house. I have a Netflix subscription. Like, I'm not, oh, well, we'd love to send somebody to go plant a church in Bhutan, but, you know, uh, I just, we don't have the money. Yes, we do. We, as a capital W, as a church, have the money. So we've, we've got to send. If we can't go, we should send. If you can't go, you should send. But let me say this. If you're supposed to go, don't you dare send. God called me to the, the mission field, but I'm not going to go. I'm just going to send money. That's not going to cut it with the Lord. It's not going to work. Well, that was when I was a kid. I'm older now. George Mueller was 80 when he went on his first missions trip to Africa. And that's like pre-vaccine, pre-hospital, pre-all that stuff. Let's just go to Africa. Because what did he say? That, well, I'm too old to do this orphanage thing anymore. I'm going to die soon anyway. I might as well die on the frontiers preaching the gospel to people who've never heard it before. That's the attitude. That's the heart. We sh if you can't go, you should send. But if you're supposed to go, don't send. Go. Paul's ambition was wide enough to in include not just church planting, but financial blessing. If we've got the resources, we've got to make sure that there is no need unmet in God's church. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Pause. Do you see the Trinity in that verse? I'd like to point those out. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Spirit, and your prayers to God, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul very often uses saints to describe Jewish Christians. A little note there. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. His final appeal in this chapter is for the Romans to pray for him. And he gives them two prayer requests. Number one, deliverance from unbelievers. He knew he was walking into a dangerous situation. He had like four different prophets tell him, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and you're going to get beat up. And he, he was. You go back and listen to our studies in Acts. We talked about that at length. So pray for that. But also pray that the mission will be successful. That this gift I'm giving will work to bring them together. And both prayers were answered. Paul was delivered from the, the Jews in Judea by the Romans, the Roman soldiers. Isn't that ironic? He said, pray that I will be delivered from the Jews, he said to the Romans. And then it was his status as a Roman citizen that enabled him to escape the Jews when he got to Jerusalem. And the mission was a success. James and, and Paul were talking about more ways they could bring the people together. The prayers were answered. And then he gives a blessing to the people here at the end. Some of the manuscripts of Romans end after chapter 15, probably because uh, some monk or something saw all of the list of names that come in chapter 16, and he goes, well, all we really need is the doctrine stuff, and just kind of finished it there. But that's not how Paul ended it, so that's not how we're going to end it. Let's say you can't go. 
You can't go. Whether you're like me and you've been called to plant churches here, I still go. I go on short-term trips. And you can't send. You're broke. You don't have that kind of money. You don't have access to that. Nothing wrong with that. You can still pray. Number three. You can still pray. And that is no small thing. I can't go. I can't send. All I can do is pray. All you can do is pray. You know the old saying, right? That until you have prayed, you cannot do more than pray. Let me say that again. Until you have prayed, you cannot do more than pray. So you can do everything necessary to bring about an incredible ministry, but if you don't pray, you have not reached the level of just praying yet. Hudson Taylor, who of course is a missionary to China, says it is possible to move men for God through prayer alone. Read Hudson Taylor's book. It was incredible. He was one of the few missionaries that had the humility to stop dressing and acting like an Englishman and start dressing and living according to the customs of China where he had been sent because he wasn't seeing himself as too good for these people. Paul called the Romans to strive with him in prayer. That word for strive together is sunagonizomai. Sun is like sin. It's like together, like synthesis or synergy. And then it's Agonizomai. You can hear the word agonize in there. To struggle together, agonize together, fight together in prayer. When the wrestlers in Greco-Roman culture would come together, they, it was called the agon. It was the struggle, the fight, the wrestling. He says, I'm not asking you to throw up a quick prayer. He says, get down on your knees and fight with me in prayer. That's what prayer is. It's a struggle. It's a war. It's the way that we bring the power of heaven to bear on the earth. When you're out on the edge of God's ministry and you need help, you need those miracles, you need the sun to stand still, that's when you pray. And the prayer of God, prayer to God, does all the things that you need. Jesus told us, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you the permission to pray. And then you go. And no one will ever be able to stop you. This church is going to be built by prayer or not at all. I've said that many times, and I'm going to keep saying it. This church, Calvary Chapel Trustville, is going to be built by prayer or not at all. We're going to be praying people. We're going to take time to pray. We're going to waste time in order to pray. We're going to take precious hours and dates and energy and push them into prayer. And at, at this point... We better not stop. Hasn't the Lord already opened up everything we've asked Him for in prayer? How long did we pray for that prison ministry to be open? Years. We prayed for years. And now it's open, and it's not only open, it's so open, there's no way we can do all the things that they've asked us to do. We just simply don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. We just can't. So the Lord opened it up, and He opened it up so wide, it's like, we're going to have to grow into this, Lord. The Lord opens up doors when we pray. Jesus said in John 14, verses 12 through 13, in case you haven't quite caught the ambition part of this, that it's okay to get excited and ambitious about the things of God, listen to what Jesus said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, did he say apostles and prophets? He said, whoever believes in me, did he say pastors and theologians? He said, whoever believes will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Hear this now. Jesus said that if you pray and you step out to do the mission because he's with the Father, the church will surpass the ministry of Jesus. You'll do more than I did. Consider the works that Jesus did. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He raised the dead. He cleansed the lepers. He opened the eyes of the blind. He says, ah, just wait till you get hold of it. Wait till I'm up there praying for you. And then I send you my Holy Spirit. And there's not just one of me. There's millions of you. And I send you out all over the world. And you're going to do greater works than I did. And we try to spiritualize that and say, you know, Jesus uh, never made a single convert because he hadn't died on the cross. Don't gut the verse. Don't rip out what Jesus is trying to say there. If you want to get technical, that, that phrase works, erga, in the book of John, exclusively refers to miracles. 
It says, the miraculous things that I did, you're going to step out and you're going to be right on the edge of the ministry. It says, how do you expect to lead a Hindu to Jesus Christ? You teach them about a new God, they just suck it right up with all the other three million gods. They need to see some miracles. How are you going to lead Muslims to Jesus Christ? They believe everything the Bible says has been corrupted. I'm going to send them dreams and visions so they can't stand it anymore. How are you going to lead atheist, secular, materialist people living in America to Jesus? If they believe everything you say is, is oppression and whiteness and colonialism, how are you going to lead them to Jesus? He says, just get out there and watch me work. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Doesn't that make anybody want to go pray a little bit? Let's go try this out. Let's go test the edges. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that when you pray, you should pester God with his promises. No, no, no. You said, Lord. Like when you ever have a kid that did that? You promised. We said we were going to go out. Oh, I, I can't do it. You promised. Do that with the Lord. Lord, you promised. Oh, I don't think God wants us to pray like that to him. Read the Psalms, brothers and sisters. David's like, Lord, you put me into this mess, and you said you'd get me out of here, so you need to get me out. And there's no way I can do it, so a miracle is our only option. There is no limit on what one man can do when he's walking in God's will, or one church, but that is intimately tied to prayer. When you're fighting in the Spirit, there will be men and women standing next to great missionaries that we all recognize, but nobody will know who these people are because they were the prayer warriors that held the rope while those people went out and did the work. There's going to be people standing next to Billy Graham and standing next to Chuck Smith and Hudson Taylor and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and all of these people that none of us recognize, but Jesus is going to go, that's the real hero because she prayed. She committed to pray and never stopped praying. So if you can't go and you can't send, you have to pray. I mean, everybody should pray at every level. But if you can't go and you can't send, then make it your business. I'm going to pray incredible things down for all the people that are out there doing the work. I'm going to get on my knees and pray for conversions and pray for miracles and pray for provision and pray for deliverance and pray for health so that the Lord allows them to continue. But if you can go, don't you dare send. And if you can go and you can send, don't you dare say, well, I'll just pray. There's a time when you need to get up and get going and stop praying. Can I say that? I sure can. When Moses was standing before the Red Sea and Pharaoh was moving on, he got on his knees and says, Lord, what do we do? And God said, what are you talking to me for? Get up and go. Jonathan went out to fight and won the battle while Saul was sitting there with the ephod having a prayer meeting. There's a time when it's, we can't just use prayer as an excuse to do nothing. And get all huffy about, well, prayer matters. Yes, it does, but somebody's got to get out there. How shall they hear unless there's a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Jerry Falwell said, nothing of eternal value is ever accomplished apart from prayer. I love that quote because that man's ministry is what so many people wish theirs was today. It was very social. It was very political. It engaged with a lot of the hot-button issues that we care about. And yet this man said, it's all prayer. It's spiritual work. It's, it's not the organization and the meetings and the rallies. It's the prayer. He also said, all of our failures are prayer failures. All of our failures are prayer failures. Paul was a doer, wasn't he? Paul was a man of action. He was a man of ambition before he was saved and after he was saved. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I have disciplined my body and beat it into submission. If you're going to run the race, run to win the race. Because if the Christian life is a race, you better believe I'm coming in first. That was Paul's attitude. But with all of that action and all of those manly qualities of getting up and going, he understood that his effectiveness was bound to prayer. So if we want to be effective, if we want to fulfill our ambitions as a church, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. I have a worldwide vision for this church as your pastor. I have ambitions to transform the world through this church, through these people that are sitting next to you, including yourself. I told you, I look at that little strip of India right in between Bangladesh and Bhutan and Myanmar and Tibet and Nepal, and I think, man, just 
a couple real solid believers that, that were courageous and fearless and knowledgeable and full of the Spirit, that whole region could be transformed. That, that could be the new center and hub of Christianity in the world. And we could watch Hinduism just forced out. We could see communism chased back into the universities where people come to Jesus Christ. I look at our country. I look at all the problems that are, that are over us, all of the... the theology that's being pushed upon us, all of the political issues and the social issues and the gender stuff and all of that. And I said, God, I want to see that, that change. But you know how we change that? Is this right here what we're doing? Christians standing together. Your life is, is like a rock in a pond. There's ripples. When you decide, I'm going to be a man of prayer and a man of preaching the gospel, you might only be able to preach to a couple people a year. And, and pray as much as you can. But you know who sees that? Your kids see that. Your kids see that. And they say, a man's job is to pray. So they start to pray. Now you've, you've multiplied yourself. And your friends in the church, when you say, well, I can't come Sunday night, I go to the prayer meeting. They're like, you know what? I should be there too. Now there's two of you praying. And as we begin to pray, you get all kinds of cool stories. You tell your other Christian friends and they go, we should pray too. And as we all begin to pray together, God starts to change things. When we say things like, well, we go and uh, preaching after school at the, at the public schools. They go, that's amazing. You know, that's way better than just sitting around complaining all the time. I want to get involved. I want to do something about that. Wait a minute. I didn't realize that the prisons were back open now that COVID's over. I want to come in and do some of that. There's ripple effects. That means what happens here is going to have worldwide consequences, eternal consequences from what happens in this room. Doesn't that fire you up? Doesn't that make you excited? Doesn't that want to make you get some ambitions and say, let's find the limit of what God will give us in prayer. Let's pray for things that are so big that only God could do them. And then when they're accomplished, we go, I guess we got to go bigger. And God goes, you ain't scaring me. You keep asking for big things. I can give you big things. Because you know what the Lord has done through this church? Reminds me of Joseph in Genesis 39, 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That's where we are as a church, as a congregation. Everything we're doing, the Lord is making it succeed. Some things slower than others, some things faster than others. But I, I was looking at the, some of the lists I've made and some of the vision things I've written down for myself and the prayer lists and I'm like, oh, what am I forgetting? Is there anything we said we were going to do that we haven't done? And I'm like, God's done all of this. He's doing all of it. God's not stopping us. And if there's something that we haven't done yet, we're gonna... And I say that because all the other things are being done too. God has not hindered anything that Calvary Chapel has ever tried to do. So we should keep going. Let's push it. Let's go to the edge. Let's go around the world and take what God's doing here and duplicate it. Because that's how we came about. And that's how that church came about. And that church, it goes all the way back to Paul. All the way back to disciples making disciples who make disciples. Who plant churches that plant churches that plant churches that send missionaries who send missionaries who send missionaries. Charles Spurgeon, I love this quote. He's writing to some pastors. He said this, We are capable of much greater things. Let us attempt them. It's time to live, for we are growing old. We are capable of much greater things. Let us attempt them. It is time for us to live, for we are growing old. We don't know how much time we've got left. If you're really getting into all that prophecy stuff like I do, and you believe the end is near, you better hurry. You better hurry. They might not have much longer to hear that Jesus might come back. There's an urgency. And yet we are capable of much greater things. We live in an age that has declared war on excellence. Have you noticed that? Anything that stands above the rest has to be pulled down. Not in God's church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you know what I love to say? Gates don't attack. Gates are defense. Gates are shut to keep the invaders out. So as my professor in college used to say, get out there and kick some gates. Get out there, take the battering ram of the gospel and bang down the gates of hell and liberate the people that are there. We've got this great calling from our God and we're doing it, but we've got to dig this well deeper. We've got to lift our eyes higher and look to the horizons across the oceans, across the nations, because that's where we're going to find our destiny in Christ. 
So here's today. Will you go? Are you going to go? I know for a fact there's going to be pastors and missionaries raised up out of this room. If you can't go, are you going to send? Are you going to spend and be spent for the kingdom of God? And if you can't do that, then will you pray? You've got to do something. You've got to do something. We need you. I firmly believe that God is raising up this church, and I'm ready to find where the frontier is. I'm ready to find the place where the Lord goes, hold up, hold up. I've got that for somebody else. I want to be like Paul when he says, I've run out of room to do ministry here. Wouldn't that be incredible? Not, not just one, one school, but all the schools. Not just one system, but the whole system. Not just one prison, but all the prisons in this state and around the country. Not just this pregnancy center, but all of them. The Lord can do that. God can change the world through this church, the people in this room, because God is not hindered from saving by many or by few. So I'll say what again what I said at the beginning. There is no limit to what one man can accomplish when he's doing God's will. And I think I've made it pretty clear from the scripture. Evangelism, missions, is the will of God. Which means there's no limit to what one church can accomplish when they pursue that goal with godly, holy ambition, with a love of honor, a desire to see the Lord say, well done. This is God's will. That means there's no limit to what we can accomplish for the kingdom. So let's have great ambition as a church. Let's make great sacrifices to chase that ambition. Because Ephesians 3.20 says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So if you think that Tyler's just being dreaming big here and talking too big, the Bible says you'll never out-imagine God. And he's able to do all of it. How? That verse ends by saying, according to the power at work within us. So let's saddle up, get into that promised land, and slay some giants, because the Lord has already promised us victory.